tongues of fire, rushing wind, and this loud multilingual speech being belted out on the streets. These are perhaps the images that are more, more often associated with Pentecost. Today is the Sunday of Pentecost. And these are the images that are most often emphasized and set center stage when Pentecost is celebrated in Sunday services throughout the world, such as today on Pentecost Sunday. But today I want, to, I want to share a different Pentecost story, a different Pentecost story, one that is in many senses more wonderful and perhaps more baffling precisely because it seems, well, it seems more mundane. I want to open with you from the gospel according to St. Luke Chapter 24, and I'll read from verses 13 to 35. And this is how St. Luke tells the story. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emos, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came, uh, came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, 
broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So says the word of God. I, I really love this story. If you have been in OIC long enough, you will know, you will know that this story is one of my favorites. And you probably heard me preach from it before. But the question for today is, why am I calling it a Pentecost story? Why am I calling it a Pentecost story? And the reason I am calling it a Pentecost story has to do with three things. It has to do with location, it has to do with temporality, and it has to do with presence. Location, temporality, and presence. Hold those words with you, but first we need to talk about what we call Pentecost to begin with, or none of this will really make much sense at all. For Christians around the world, Pentecost is the, way, is the day in which we celebrate, in which we remember, and in which we retell the story of the so-called coming or outpouring of the Holy Spirit as it is told in the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, the core group of the followers of Jesus, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, they were gathered in one place in Jerusalem, and as they were gathered, and I quote, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. After this, St. Luke tells us, Peter stood, stood up and presumably out in the street, he addressed the crowd with a speech about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a call for repentance and baptism. That is the story that is remembered and celebrated by Christian churches worldwide on Pentecost Sunday. What we less, less often remember and less often think about is why we call this day Pentecost and why the disciples were gathered in that room in that particular day. Because believe it or not, <laughs> They did not have an appointment with the Holy Spirit for that time and place. Most likely, the reason that they were gathered was because of Pentecost, but not what we Christians call Pentecost. Because these people gathered in that room, they were not Christians as we now think of it. They were Jews. They were a group of Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, 
the chosen one of God, the anointed one, Messiah the Christ, and who believed that having been killed on the cross, this same Jesus Christ had resurrected to life. So this Jewish group of followers of Jesus Christ, they were most likely gathered on that day in Jerusalem to celebrate not the Christian holiday of Pentecost, but the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about the Jewish celebration except for pointing out two things. First, that the name Pentecost was first used for the Jewish holiday, which is celebrated on the 50th day after Passover, which of course is, works out very well for Christians that it is, of course, also the 50th day after the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this this festival, this, this celebration was also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of 50 Weeks. And that's where the name comes from. Pentecoste is the Greek term for 50th. So 50 weeks after. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament or of the Jewish scriptures, this term is used to describe this festivity. Right? So that's where the word Pentecost comes from. If you didn't know, now you do. Now, the other thing that I wanted to, to point out is that this Jewish festival of weeks, it was a harvest festival. So it was a festival, more specifically, a festival that marked the wheat harvest. So just keep that in mind. This is why these people are gathering. We have a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who most likely were gathered on that day in Jerusalem for a wheat harvest celebration. And they're doing this sometime after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as they are doing that, suddenly something happens. Something happens that makes them realize, makes them see, makes them understand the presence of God is here. The presence of God is is here the spirit of god which they had learned to recognize and which they had learned to love in the son jesus christ that presence is here it is here and it is moving in the spaces in between them and within them now let us go back to that kitchen in the village of Emos. That kitchen where two followers of Jesus are in deep conversation with what they assume is a stranger. And the substance of their conversation, the content of their conversation, is that they are trying to make sense of the death of Jesus, and they're trying to make sense of these stories of his resurrection, the stories that say that he is still alive, or alive again. And as they try to make sense of these stories together, they sit for a meal. They sit for a fellowship. And sitting around the meal is one of the intimate places of hospitality in the Middle East, and still very much to this day. They sit for a meal, and there is bread on the table. Wheat 
that has been harvested, has been broken, and has been kneaded and baked into bread. Bread on the table. And this stranger, this other among them, who was supposedly the guest, he takes the bread as the host ought to do, and he gives thanks and he breaks it. And when he does that, in that moment, something happens. Suddenly, it clicks. The presence of God is here. The presence of God is here. The risen Christ is here. His spirit is as alive and as present as it could ever have been. God is here. Their hearts are warm. Their hearts are burning and are pumping blood as they run back to Jerusalem and they encounter a fellowship with this risen Christ. It pours into this wider fellowship of the other followers, of the other believers. This realization that they have had in their meeting, that Christ is with them, that God is there, that the presence of God is there, it pours out into this bigger fellowship. It belongs into this wider fellowship. It is true. He is alive and he is moving. Location, temporality, and presence. By location, I mean two things. One is I mean a setting. The setting. You have a group of followers of Jesus gathered around an essential means of both sustenance and fellowship. They have bread for a meal, right? The harvest of wheat. A meal in this village, a celebration of the harvest and of the possibility of food for the season in the celebration of, Pente of Pentecost. Location, setting. And the other thing that I mean by location is location, <laughs> is that this is happening somewhere. It's happening somewhere. This is not a theological abstraction. It's not a vision of some place other. It's not a glimpse into some distant spiritual realm. This is happening somewhere here in the land of the living. Emos, Jerusalem. These places are there to this very day. And if we could walk there with our bare feet, they would get dust on them. It's somewhere. It's a location. By temporality, I also mean two things. First, I mean that this is post-resurrection. And that's the common thread in these two stories, right? 
Both these stories are happening after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are about his followers trying to figure out what it meant to live out their faith in this new context, in this new temporality, this new time in which Christ is no longer walking among them in bodily form and they're following him around the roads of Galilee, but somehow there's these stories that he is still alive and we are still his followers. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to, to be his disciple? What does this mean today in this new time? So that's the first thing I mean by temporality. The other is that it happens in time. <laughs> Similar to location, right? These stories are about the revelation of the presence of God in the midst of time. They are not memories or predictions. They are stories of when eternity and our experience of time fold upon each other and somehow touch. Time. Somewhere. Some when, that's even a word. Location and temporality and presence. And by presence, I mean one thing. The realization that the Spirit of God is present. The realization that somehow the life of the resurrected Christ touches our lives in time and in space. That somehow the life of the creator moves the hearts of these living, breathing creatures. That somehow our sensibility to that presence is awoken in the breaking of the bread. I am calling this story of the disciples at Emmaus a Pentecost story because of these shared features, let's call us that, of temporality, of location, and of presence. But I'm calling them stories of Pentecost even more because of what they share with us today. There's much to be said about the story of the tongues of fire and the rushing wind. There's much that challenges us. There is much that we need to hear and need to know. But there's also risk to that story. And the risk is that we reduce the movement of the Spirit to the extraordinary. To the event that fits in half one chapter of the whole telling of the gospel and of the acts by Luke. That we somehow reduce it to this one-time event. And the risk is that we don't awaken and don't train our sensibility and don't direct our celebrations to the ordinary, to the so-called mundane to the presence of the Spirit of God, 
to the presence of the spirit of the resurrected Christ in time and in space as we experience it. In fellowship and breaking of bread as we experience it. Yet it's there in the story itself. If we read on beyond this, this in, Luke, in Acts 2, if we go on with how Luke himself tells the story, what is the lasting outworking of Pentecost? Also in Acts 2, there's this event and this big thing that happens, but what is the thing that stays, that lingers, that continues moving around? And Luke says also in Acts 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And he goes on to describe these people who share life and gather for meals, for groceries and raising kids and cleaning the bathroom and sitting again for a meal and eating together and living as we all do, as we all need. Sustenance and fellowship in just these everyday things. And that's where the mark of the Spirit is lasting and goes on. The blowing wind and the tongues of fire, they need to be at the service of the meal fellowship, of the everyday stuff where, where holiness and presence really takes place, where the presence of the Holy One can be a breath of grace in the land of the living and not a figment of memory in a religious story. Pentecost needs to make its way into our daily life. And especially it needs to make its way into our meals of fellowship. That's where it meets Easter and all the rest. That's where it comes together. It's a strong image. And of course, meals aren't always meals, right? But there's these places where we gather around our essential basic human need of sustenance and of each other. And in those spaces... We are nurtured by the Spirit, and the Spirit nurtures us and our sensibilities to perceive that He is at work and our ability to see each other. That's where death and resurrection starts taking shapes in acts of forgiveness and transformation in our bodies as we move in time and space, in our relationships as we move in time and space, in our economy, 
as we move in time and space. When the bread of the presence of Christ is on the table of our daily meal and the table where we meet, and it's broken. The presence of God is with us. The presence of God is with us. Again, there's harvest. There's food. And we can keep on going. There's life. These stories connect what we do here in this house, in this home, around this table. And all the shapes and ways of tables out there. Which is why the Holy Communion has been one of the few things from the way we celebrate as Christians that can be tracked all the way back to the disciples sitting down with Jesus. It's a lot of stuff that we take for granted about doing church that we think, oh, this is how it's always been done until you go into the story, until you have a long enough conversation with Jesse, for instance, the church historian. is going to be like, yeah, nope. But this we have been doing from the very beginning. Sitting around the table with Christ. Let us pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards you into the reality of your lives, into your days of darkness and sorrow and your days of joy and celebration that in all of them he may bring you his peace. So go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve the Lord and serve each other joyfully. Amen.